Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Mama Uh We've got a great topic today. The D.C. Circuit just ruled on a, a suit against OSHA uh, with respect to the coronavirus pandemic and, uh, and OSHA's decision to not issue a temporary emergency temporary standard. So we'll talk about that as well as some of the critical features of OSHA law that are implicated with this suit uh, and some related issues. Uh, let me take a moment to allow people to dial in to catch up, but while that's taking place, let me just point out that this is a webinar that we've been doing for uh, over seven years. Uh, every single month, uh, we do a new topic uh, every month in about every 30 days, and we try and cover a developmental issue in about 30 minutes, plus the title. Uh, and, and the members of the OSHA 3030 community have been participating consistently, coming back for, for many, many years and sharing the good word with other uh, people involved in the Office of General Counsel or safety and health professionals at corporations around the country and around the world. And, and that's been great to see. This program is something we do for friends and clients of the law firm Keller and & Heckman. And it's also important to note that uh, we do this complimentary to you as a, a service to our clients and friends of the firm. So uh, the only thing we ask is when you get this, uh, when you get this uh, announcement as an email, please forward it on to three others involved in safety and health, either in-house or safety and health professionals. Even if you've already done so before, please forward it on to three more and help keep spreading the word so that the program can keep going. Uh, with that said, uh, let me introduce uh, the, the faculty for today's uh, episode of the OSHA 3030. As you know, I am Manish Rapp. I'm an attorney here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in, Washington, in our Washington, D.C. office, and I am a part of our OSHA practice. I'm joined today by another member of our OSHA practice, attorney Javane Nakumaram, who, who focuses on occupational safety and health law, as well as various aspects of environmental law. Chavane, thank you, and thank you for joining us, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 today. Hi, Manish. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Chavane, as you know, we've got a great topic. Um, we've had a lot of great topics over the years, and they're all libraried on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030, many of which are still very informative and relevant to this day. Uh, so, so for those of you who haven't caught all the episodes, it's worth a few minutes to browse through our library at khlaw.com slash OSHA3030 and see if there are other topics that interest you. The slides and the sound combined in one self-executing file. Also, don't forget to subscribe as a podcast through your favorite podcast uh, media like Apple Podcast app or uh, we're even now on Spotify as well as on SoundCloud. So what we're going to talk about today is the ASL-CIO's emergency petition to OSHA and its ensuing lawsuit against OSHA to implement an emergency temporary standard, uh, the court's analysis of that uh, complaint, and uh, in light of the court's decision, what uh, OSHA's approach is to, to managing the coronavirus pandemic with respect to workplace safety and health. Finally, as we always do, we'll finish off with a discussion of practical takeaway items for you listening members of our community uh, in a slide we call what employers should do. So with that said, uh, let's, let's talk about this case. So the AFL-CIO, they issued a request in the form of a petition 
to the U.S. Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And essentially, they asked OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Act permits the agency to issue an emergency temporary standard without the need for full-blown notice and comment rulemaking and because it's on an emergency basis, and you should do so in order to develop an emergency temporary standard that specifically addresses the, the control measures that employers need to be taking uh, in the workplace with respect to the coronavirus pandemic. And there's no specific standard on points, the AFL-CIO argued, and guidance is not, doesn't have the same mandatory or enforceable quality that a, an emergency temporary standard would. And so we want you to do this. We want you to issue an emergency temporary standard. OSHA, OSHA's uh, non-response was taken by the AFL-CIO as a uh, denial of its petition, and OSHA filed suit with the DC, with the US Court of Appeals for the circuit for the District of Columbia, which we'll refer to as the DC Circuit. This is the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. And it's essentially a petition for a writ of mandamus, uh, arguing that OSHA should be compelled by the courts to issue an emergency temporary standard and must uh, and, and it pled for the courts to issue an order that OSHA must do so within 30 days. Uh, OSHA responded to the court with a, I'm sorry, they responded to the AFL-CIO with a denial of the AFL-CIO's petition for emergency temporary standard and then responded to court. Chavane, I think that the arguments that the, both parties made are extremely uh, informative for, for us in the OSHA 3030 community. Yes, so getting into the getting into the case, I think it's important to understand what is required uh, of OSHA to find before it decides an, an emergency temporary standard is appropriate. So, so Section 6 of the OSH Act gives OSHA the authority to issue an emergency temporary standard if OSHA determines that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to a new hazard and that an emergency standard is necessary to protect employees from such danger. So if OSHA issues uh, an emergency temporary standard, it would take effect immediately until it's eventually superseded by a permanent standard that OSHA is supposed to issue within six months of the emergency temporary standard. So AFL-CIO, here they argue that an emergency temporary standard is appropriate because COVID-19 puts employees in grave danger. Uh, grave danger saying that the virus poses a danger of incurable or permanent or fatal consequences to workers. Uh, and they cite to the, the figures that over 2 million people in the U.S. have been infected by the virus and about 110,000 people have died. Uh, they also discuss how the dangers of COVID-19 are especially true of workers who were, um, who were deemed to be essential workers. Uh, so, uh, so they were continuing to go into work. And of course, healthcare workers and nursing home aides and uh, first responders, uh, you know, people who come in direct contact with those who have the virus. And also for workers who are now starting to go back to work as uh, state stay-at-home orders are lifted. So the AFL-CIO argued that an OSHA standard for infectious diseases 
is necessary to protect employees from this grave danger. Uh, and they asked OSHA to issue this standard, which would uh, require employers to evaluate their workplaces for the risk of airborne disease transmission. Yeah, and Javani, I want to point out one more thing. When you talk about essential workers uh, and, and, in addition, healthcare providers, nursing aides, uh, first, first responders, essential workers is a very large segment of our uh, listening community. It includes anyone in almost all manufacturing sectors, food, food manufacturing, retail of essential goods. Uh, it, it involves construction. Um, commercial and residential construction in most, almost all states. At some point, some states had ruled some of them, uh, some subsectors to be non-essential, but almost all sectors of construction are, are considered essential. Uh, transportation is considered essential. Communications is considered essential. So, so those are all contemplated within the scope of the AFL-CIO's uh, claim that essential workers should be protected under the emergency temporary standard. I just wanted to clarify that. Yep. Right. Right. Yes. And so the AFL-CIO, they, they called OSHA's refusal to take action on an emergency temporary standard, um, a stunning act of non-feasance in the midst of this, uh, of COVID-19, uh, as they call it, a, a workplace health emergency. And so they're urging, they're arguing that an emergency temporary standard is required and that the, sh the court should order OSHA to issue one. It's, uh, an so we... it's an interesting point that they're saying that, that, that uh, OSHA's provision for emergency temporary standards, if it's not implemented when the AFL-CIO thinks it should be, that that would be an act of non-feasance. Uh, I think that that was more probably rhetorical than, than uh, an argument founded in law. But I think that the legal uh, basis for the D.C. circuits to rule on this question is, is equally interesting. Absolutely. So uh, getting into the D.C. circuits ruling, uh, we wanted to give some background on the level of deference that the D.C. circuit uh, should afford OSHA when it decides uh, whether or not to issue an emergency temporary standard. So the D.C. circuit here, they look to precedent to in the Public Citizen Health Research Group versus Outer case, which is a 1983 case in the D.C. Circuit, where the court decided that OSHA is entitled to considerable deference in deciding whether or not to issue an emergency temporary standard unless their decision lacks support in the record. So that was the standard applied in this case by the D.C. Circuit. So... I guess it's important to point out some of the so – the, so that was the precedent uh, in, in the case, and I think it's important to understand the, the kinds of methods by which OSHA can make pronouncements about workplace safety and health. The act, which was promulgated in 1970, first of all, created OSHA, the agency, and then it directed OSHA, the agency, to promulgate specific regulations on specific elements of safety and health. In addition, the Act has this general duty clause concept, and the general duty clause essentially is a catch-all mandate that every employer shall uh, provide a workplace that's free of recognized uh, safety and health hazards, and uh, to, the, to the extent practicable. And then, in addition, there are countless 
interpretation documents, letters of interpretation, for example, but as well these guidance documents that OSHA can publish without having to go through rulemaking. And they are interpretive. Uh, some of the specific regulations that, to a limited extent, apply to coronavirus include standards for personal protective equipment, such as eye protection. Um, there's a standard for housekeeping and sanitation. There's a record-keeping standard where work-related cases of coronavirus positive should be recorded. Uh, many people think the bloodborne pathogen standard would be applicable, but in fact, uh, coronavirus is not a bloodborne pathogen. It's, it's respirably transmitted and does therefore not get covered by the bloodborne pathogen standard. OSHA has therefore opined that the basic principles of infection control found in the bloodborne pathogen standard should be studied and consider and employers should consider which of those elements are applicable, but it is not itself an applicable standard for, for the purpose of coronavirus. So this is important because this is the basis for which uh, OSHA has decided to issue guidance documents related to coronavirus and why the AFL-CIO would want a specific emergency temporary standard on point. So, Javane, let's talk about the arguments that each of the parties made before the D.C. Circuit. So, OSHA, uh, they explained that they have a two-pronged strategy for addressing COVID-19, uh, and that is enforcing existing standards, as well as using what they call rapid and flexible guidance that is industry-specific, so that it could be easily updated as information on COVID-19 and um, the spread of the virus continues to evolve. And so using its existing tools, like existing standards, the general duty clause, and guidance, uh, OSHA argued that this was a flexible and effective method at addressing the COVID-19 pandemic, and that, and therefore, the emergency temporary standard is not necessary. And further, they argue that the AFL-CIO did not, uh, the AFL-CIO lacked evidence um, that the current methods that OSHA is using are ineffective at addressing uh, the hazard of coronavirus. So, uh, and then, oh, well, there's a, there's a, I think that's all really important to consider. And there's also another thing that really didn't get spoken about in this case, I suspect. And that's that when the coronavirus phenomenon first appeared, there was very little that was understood. And even now, it is a developing area of medical science. And infection control is a part of that developing body of knowledge. And so, so OSHA essentially argued that that it could be able to adapt more nimbly to this changing landscape with the possibility of uh, issuing guidance documents rather than the emergency temporary standards. That's right, and uh, and the AFL CIO their concerns with OSHA's approach are that you know, guidance is non-mandatory and there could be non-uniform implementation. And also um, they, they were concerned that the general duty clause could be too difficult uh, to prove. And so they argued that an emergency temporary standard is the appropriate approach. Um, however, as you fact, know, the, 
Chavanay, as you as yep. you note uh, here, their their argument that they could much more nimbly and quickly address workplace safety issues related to coronavirus through guidances has proven to a certain extent to be supported by the guidances they have issued, wouldn't you think? Right, agreed. Uh, OSHA has issued a lot of very tailored guidance in response to COVID-19. So they they first issued, you know, general guidance for preparing the workplace for COVID, but then they also issued uh, respirator-specific guidance. There are about five different uh, types of guidance out there addressing, you know, uh, respirator shortages and proper use of respirators. Um, also, uh, guidance on reporting and record keeping of COVID-19 cases. And then um, OSHA has issued nine different guidances for very particular high-risk industries, uh, like, um, you know, folks who deliver uh, food delivery services and emergency responders and uh, workers who work in nursing homes. And so OSHA tried to really tailor the needs of each industry and provide specific guidance that way. Other industries that have a specific industry guidance include meatpacking, uh, pharmacy, retail pharmacy, mm-hmm. um, the, the limousine and taxi passenger transportation industry. And I don't think that these are necessarily the highest risk uh, environments, although dentistry is in there and it's widely considered one of the highest risk uh, workplace environments. But they are the ones that, they're the first nine certainly to have uh, seen a, an OSHA guidance that's that's specific to their, their industry. Agriculture is the most recent uh, guidance came out on June 2 last week uh, relating to agriculture. So, right, and so, yeah. Kevin, go ahead. Yes, and so not only has OSHA uh, pointed to its existing standards that they, uh, that are, uh, th- that may not be directly addressing COVID-19, but they are relevant to addressing the hazards that COVID-19 presents, as well as uh, guidance. OSHA also pointed to the general duty clause. So, uh, they asserted that uh, the general duty clause imposes an additional mandatory obligation on employers. Uh, as Manish mentioned earlier, under the OSH Act, employers are required to furnish employees uh, a workplace free from recognized hazards that cause or are likely to cause death or serious physical harm. And so OSHA can cite an employer under the general duty clause if the employer fails to keep the workplace free of, of hazards uh, that employees are exposed to uh, and that the hazard is recognized and the hazard caused or was likely to cause death or serious physical harm and that there is a feasible and useful method to correct the hazard. And so OSHA has acknowledged in its brief that COVID-19 is a recognized hazard and that employers who fail to take preventative measures against COVID-19 could uh, potentially face liability under the general duty clause. So all of the guidance that the CDC and OSHA and other government authorities have put out, as well as uh, industry guidance, all of those demonstrate possible feasible methods that an employer can use. So employers can choose an effective method to abate uh, the hazard under the general duty clause. And so, in fact, all of this publicly available guidance actually enhances the power of the general duty clause as an enforcement tool. And this uh, is consistent with one of their specific guidances that that employers will be given uh, a little bit of opportunity to show a good faith compliance method. 
Um, in addition, what we covered last month, uh, I'll repeat, another guidance came out that, that OSHA will be conducting a lot of its inquiries by uh, sending out inquiry letters rather than making on-site inspections just to make sure they cover more territory and at the same time don't expose their workers to, to uh, exposure potentially to coronavirus. So, Javane, you covered the general duty clause elements, and I think that that's helpful to, to make sure we're, we're caught up on. And you can see why, as you described those elements, the AFL-CIO argued that this is harder for OSHA to enforce because they have to meet all of these elements. And um, that, that is one of the inherent problems with the general duty clause is that the elements necessary to prove a violation of the general duty clause are a little bit more rigorous. But I think that that was intentionally designed that way because if OSHA has to assert that this is something widely recognized or that there are feasible means of abatement, then, then it needs to be able to establish those uh, uh, through a preponderance of evidence. So I think that that, that that is a reasonable burden when going to an enforcement action under the general duty clause rather than a specific standard. So, Javanay, as you know, we've been watching the workplace-related litigation, civil litigation, pile up. And uh, the first one that we believe was filed by an employee, the estate of a deceased employee, in fact, was against a Walmart in Cook County, Illinois, alleging failure to adhere to OSHA guidelines and CDC guidances. Uh, since then, we've seen suits filed against a McDonald's, also in Chicago, also in state court, uh, seeking a preliminary injunction against what it claimed were elements of the workplace that uh, that the plaintiff the plaintiffs felt was unsafe. Um, Smithfield, which has been in the news for one of the largest work-related outbreaks, uh, and, and is in an industry with uh, some of the largest uh, work-related outbreaks, uh, is now subject to a a public nuisance lawsuit in Missouri, which was dismissed in federal court, Javanay? It was. It was um, a few weeks ago. So but the OSHA a, case is still going forward. Correct. The OSHA investigation is ongoing. Yeah. And just last week, Amazon was hit with a public nuisance lawsuit in for its uh, facility in New York, I believe right there in New York City. So what we're seeing is employers are subject to the possibility of OSHA inspections, OSHA citations. They're also subject to the possibility of uh, workers' comp claims, but employees are bringing s civil lawsuits under tort theories in state and federal courts, arguing that failure to comply with OSHA guidelines, failure to comply with CDC guidelines is tantamount not only to a tort, an actionable lawsuit, but also should be sufficient to overcome a workers' comp bar. Or in the case of public nuisance suits, it doesn't even require a specific physical injury or illness. Uh, it may, may seek injunctive relief to prevent an injury or illness that a plaintiff thinks is imminent. So why don't we conclude with a discussion of what employers should do in light of these developments. Well, we now know that, that the opportunity for an emergency temporary standard is not imminent. The D.C. Circuit Court has denied the AFL-CIO's petition for writ of mandamus, forcing OSHA to, to implement an emergency temporary standard. So that won't happen. We can now expect a few things to happen. In addition, at the same time, there was a congressional inquiry 
under uh, the Workforce Protection Subcommittee, and uh, they they inquired why OSHA would not issue an emergency temporary standard. And OSHA's uh, response was essentially the same. In addition to, well, we believe guidance is certainly uh, something we can achieve much with much more nimbleness. Uh, in addition, they said we can't really get into the particulars of anything relating to the lawsuit itself because at that time the lawsuit was pending. We can also expect that Congress may uh, craft another coronavirus relief bill and that proponents of this particular subcommittee hearing may seek to introduce into that bill a, a rider or a, an attachment that seeks to mandate that OSHA engage in uh, promulgating an emergency temporary standard. So that's a possibility. Uh, Howsoever likely or unlikely that possibility may be, we have to keep our eyes out for the possibility of a congressionally directed uh, impetus to develop an emergency temporary standard. The other thing I'd say is, as OSHA had argued, that these guidances are much more likely to be um, the, the most relevant document from OSHA, and that I think it's reasonable to expect that OSHA will continue to promulgate more and more guidance documents uh, going forward. So they have to be monitored, particularly if one speaks directly to your industry. But if one doesn't speak to your industry and the specific contents within a guidance for some other industry are nevertheless translatable to your industry, you'd have, I think, a tough time as an employer arguing why you didn't comply with those steps, those recommended steps. So it's important to keep uh, up to date of, of CDC and OSHA guidances, uh, generally speaking, and in addition, those that specifically talk to your your uh, specific industry or operations. One of those guidances refers to the idea that an employer should have a written exposure assessment for coronavirus exposure and a written coronavirus control plan. And I think it's safe to say that uh, employers should consider developing their own ex uh, coronavirus exposure assessment and coronavirus control plan uh, so that they have that document to, to rely on when defending themselves in these cases as to what their, their protocols were, their practices and their engineering controls and, uh, and as well their, their personal protective equipment. And that uh, I think moreover, it's important to show all of the sources that you use to rely on to develop that plan, including all of the CDC and OSHA guidances, and the last thing I'd say, Javane, and I'd be curious your thoughts on this, is that, that uh, the training documents, once you develop a control plan, employees need to be trained. Managers need to be trained on the control plan and proper precautions and proper steps that they need to be taking. And those training documents and the training records uh, need to be preserved as well as evidence of fulfillment of that uh, control plan. Manish, I agree. I think it's very important to uh, make sure that all efforts to protect employees and train them about the proper use of PPE, proper uh, procedures for uh, whether it's social distancing, hand washing, sanitizing, cleaning, anything that an employer decides to implement, that they uh, record these trainings and put the trainings in writing and also document the source because as we've seen, guidance changes very frequently as our knowledge of coronavirus evolves and as the circumstances change. Um, so it is important to stay on top of all of those developments and demonstrate that you are monitoring 
things as they progress. Right. And when you cite to in the development of your control written control plan a guidance document, then I think the dates of the version of the guidance document that you're mm-hmm. citing should be recorded as well. Because as you said, Javane, these things do change. Uh, they, the CDC has pulled and revised several guidances uh, relating to coronavirus over the past two months. And in some cases, they've revised the, multi- uh, the same point multiple times. So, so to preserve the date of the guidance that you relied on in developing a control plan is, to me, a really good practice. Uh, well, Javane, that's it for this month's OSHA 3030. Um, for those of us participating today, you can catch more OSHA developments on Twitter at Rathmonish. This program is repeated as a podcast as well. So even if you can't tune in to the webinar, you can always catch it on the go uh, as a podcast. And we are on the Apple Podcasts app. We are on SoundCloud, several other uh, podcast apps. And we are now on Spotify. Uh, we also, each of us have LinkedIn pages, myself, and my colleagues, David Salvati, Larry Halpern, Javane Nakumaram, John Gustafson, and others in our OSHA practice, as well as Keller and Heckman's own Workplace Safety and Health LinkedIn page. Uh, our next OSHA 3030 will be on July 22 uh, at 1 p.m. Eastern time, always on a Wednesday, always at 1 p.m. And more information can be found on our website, as well as past episodes at khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. For those of you who get that next invitation, please remember to forward it on to three more people uh, involved in safety and health in the Office of In-House Counsel or, uh, or in safety and health uh, at your organization or at other organizations. We have sister programs, the Tosca 3030, Reach 3030, and FIFRA 3030, and they're all coming up uh, with new episodes in July as well. Uh, on behalf of myself and my colleagues here at Keller and Heckman, uh, I want to thank you, Javane Nakumaram, for joining us today. I want to thank all of you in our community for participating today. And we look forward to seeing you next month. And until then, stay safe.